Welcome everybody to our podcast series, Leading in a Climate Changed World. It's a great pleasure today to be speaking to Ed Gillespie. Ed is a keynote speaker, writer, communications specialist, serial entrepreneur, and futurist. He's the author of a book called Only Planet, a flight-free adventure around the world, which described his circumnavigation of the globe without getting on a plane. Professionally, Ed is known for his own unique brand of authentic insultancy, being strategically and playfully cheeky to clients with judicious wit and wisdom to inspire them to greater heights and aspirations. He often works at C-suite level to help boards understand big businesses' role in self-disruption of their own business models and creating entrepreneurial lifeboats of lean innovation. Ed was the co-founder of Futera, a change agency that specializes in business transformation and creative communications and campaigns. And he is also the co-founder of the Global Goals Accelerator, a business program aimed at delivering the sustainable development, development goals. He's actively involved in a number of other pioneering ethical businesses as a director or investor from Growing Underground, a renewable energy powered LED lit hydroponic farm in a disused underground tunnel in South London to Demand Logic, a Fitbit for buildings and many others. And lastly, he's a facilitator with the Forward Institute for Responsible Leadership. He's a director of Greenpeace UK, a trustee of Energy Revolution, and alongside fellow futurist Mark Stevenson, is one half of the Future Noughts, doing live shows and podcasts on pragmatic optimism. So, very extensive bio, Ed, and welcome. Thanks for giving us your time and your very busy schedule. I wish I'd edited it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and maybe we could start with this, with the last thing that I said about pragmatic optimism, because you know these are, of course, challenging times around the climate emergency and. Some people talk about optimism and hope and balance it with denial. And where, where do you sit on the whole reasons to be cheerful? Is there still hope? What's the grounds for optimism? All the climate science tells us that you know, it's probably too late. Where do you sit with all that? How do you manage all that in yourself? And where do you see leaders that are holding those paradoxes? Yeah, um, I mean, it's Thursday today, right? I mean, I, I kind of, I think I oscillate, uh, to be honest. I think for those of us who've worked in this stuff for decades, uh, it's it's hard to kind of cling on to a sense of, you know, one-dimensional optimism, um, not least because you felt these things swimming towards you fairly inexorably and fairly predictably, uh, with sort of grim predictability, for such a long time. Um, stoking that fire of optimism can sometimes be a bit challenging. Um, at the same time, I don't really subscribe to the sort of the binary, you know, are you, are you hopeful or are you pessimistic? I think there's a very real risk right now where there's a, there's a big gulf between what you might call the slightly one-dimensional, happy-clappy, brittle, techno-utopian-style optimists, you know, go, hey, well, you know, we've got the money and we've got the technology and all we need to do is is spin this whole thing around and everything will be hunky-dory. Um, and then at the other end, you know, you have the sort of perhaps slightly more resigned fatalism uh, and, and the deep, deep adaptation style work where, again, it's, it's much too late. You know, what we need to be doing is, is getting into the grain of what is going to be perhaps a very difficult or bumpy transition. Uh, and we should be focused much more perhaps on the, the social technologies of, you know, empathy and compassion and, and, and organizing in sensitive and diplomatic ways. Um, and I, I'm not really in either of those camps. I'm sort of somewhere in the middle. 
where I think it's a sort of dark optimism that I feel. Um, and the optimism, I think, and my positivity comes from, you know, the sort of cliched, uh, indubitable, uh, indomitable aspects of the human spirit that we will find a way through somehow. But uh, I, I caveat that with the fact that, you know, that's not going to be potentially a very comfortable journey. Um, yeah, I remember uh, our mutual friend Paul Gilding um, when he was writing his book, The Great Disruption, when he gave a talk in London and someone asked him the same question and said, you know, you're an optimist, Paul. Uh, and he said, yeah, of course I am. But uh, yeah, it's going to get it's going to get bumpy. I think were his very sort of direct words. And then he said, and I think a lot of people are going to die. Uh, and my flatmate at the time, Johnny, was in the audience. Uh, who worked in international development and he sort of picked up in the questions he said paul you said you thought a lot of people are going to die you know how, how many people do you think and paul in a sort of offhand way so went oh i don't know about two to three billion uh you know there was, sort of, there was a sort of gasp in the room and i think that's why the optimism is dark because you know this could be really quite difficult and i so say that's and that's not to be resigned and fatalistic about it i think there's a kind of a, a brutal pragmatic realism in the middle there that can't sell people a false puppy with the fact that this is all going to be smooth and plain sailing and all we need to do is roll out solar panels and wind turbines uh you know and stop wasting so much food and everything will be okay um you know i, I think that's a false flag and i think that's actually potentially a little bit dangerous now at the same time you know we know full well that when people feel completely overwhelmed by hopelessness that that in itself can be counterproductive and that's both of those positions can fuel denial of different different colors and different strains i think so um in, in terms of leaders who i think hold this space right now and the way that they the way they talk about it i mean i think i, I do admire and have a lot of um respect for for people like professor jen bendel you know for taking his stance on deep adaptation because i think it's a it's a very powerful provocation. Um, we can argue about the details and the minutiae and the kind of inevitability of collapse, uh, because that's obviously very loaded language. But I think he has taken quite a, you know, a personal and personally and professionally risky position, and that's to be commended. I think that's courageous. Um, and on the sort of uh, in the middle ground, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure the optimistic other end of the spectrum helps us quite so much. But in the in the middle ground, I think it's it's where you're starting to see leaders asking much much more fundamental questions. I think as a consultant, you know, I worked in a world of what I now sort of sort of begrudgingly feel is miserable incrementalism for a long time. Where you know where even though our aspiration might have been to completely transform a client, that wasn't where the client was at, um, and so you ended up in you know a diluted and rather thinly spread um, set of initiatives which were pretty much about polishing or propping up the status quo in some way shape or form rather than engaging in, in the really transformative work so um, that's quite a long answer to a short question but you know I, I find myself oscillating in that middle space there is optimism there is always hope I think of, of some description um, but but it but it's a dark and realistic place yeah, and I appreciate the phrase dark optimism. I think that's probably a little bit where, where I am too and, and where many of the people that we've interviewed are. You've also mentioned a few people 
interestingly enough, who are also in the podcast series. So we've interviewed Jenny yeah. Van Bell and I'm about to interview Paul Gilding also in a couple of weeks' yeah, time. So okay. you know, I think some, some of these dialogues are, are happening in many places. And yeah, so I'm curious. You also said when you mentioned Jen Bendel, you said, you know, this is a, it's a courageous step to kind of write the paper mm. adaptation. And I'm wondering where you see the courage that's needed. Who are, the, who are the people or the places or the organizations who have the courage to step into what they know they need to do? Because sometimes it can feel a bit like we know, and many people, I think, unless they're totally blind to the science, know what's needed but not so many people have the courage to change a business model or change a product or no. where do you see those examples of courage that might inspire us at this time? Yeah. I mean, I, I do think the activists that have been involved in the extinction rebellion, um, have demonstrated quite some quite astonishing courage, um, uh, in, in a very short space of time and had quite a dramatic impact. I know you've interviewed Gail Bradbrook as well, but I, I, I think that very simple notion of tell the truth and act like that truth is real really um, struck a chord with people because these type of movements are not, they're not created, they're born out of um, uh, a, a disturbance and a frustration and a discontent. And, and so I think the, the, the commitment of people putting their bodies and their liberty on the line in a, in a non-violent form of civil disobedience has been incredibly powerful and I think has touched a lot of people. You know, people don't necessarily always agree with some of the tactics, you know, people don't always necessarily agree with everything that um, Extinction Rebellion is saying, but there's no doubt about it. there's a there's a fact that there's a very powerful human response to people prepared to to put themselves in those type of positions. And and so, I, yeah, and I've been peripherally involved in a lot of that as well. And, you know, and I, and I think it's encouraging. So I think that that's a really good form of sort of courageous leadership from a, a perhaps a protest and a, and a civil disobedience and resistance type of perspective. And, you know, and it's a rebellion. I, I say this to a lot of people, you know, it's not a revolution. They're not trying to smash the state or destroy the state. The rebellion is, is, is a resistance to, to encourage and inspire and compel the state to change. Um, and I think that in itself is very powerful. You know, it's not, it's not about tearing the whole thing down. Uh, it is about some pretty um, radical root and branch reform um, if we're going, if we're going to muddle our way through. I mean, I think in the business world, it's it's a lot trickier um, because of all the the natural constraints that we know these uh, certainly overworked, overstressed, you know, time poor, uh, reflection poor, attention deficit um, type of individuals because of all the the massive multiple and competing demands on their time. And I think as a result, the clarity of that decision making is often very compromised at that level. Um, in order to try and get to uh, bold ideas. Um, and when, and when, and just to pause you for a moment on the business piece, because, you know, every now and then there's an initiative, there's like B Corp is yeah. the initiative, and then there's yeah. 180 companies in the United States signing an agreement saying, we undertake and agree that the primary purpose of our product and our company is not simply to maximize shareholder dividends, yeah. it's also to do something of benefit to society. Is that just a load of window dressing, or do you think there's real shit? when people make statements like that? Well, I mean, I have to say, I do kind of chime a little bit with Anand Giridharadas on this, you know, who wrote um, Winners Take All, um, which is, he said it's, you know, the, the elite charade of changing the world. Um, because, you know, he said, I mean, specifically referencing, you know, those 180 businesses who came together to say, you know, purpose is more important than, you know, the, the, the sole pursuit of profit. 
and I think Anne Anne sort of said, well, you know, that's like, that's obvious to your average eight-year-old. <laughs> there's more to it than those kind of things. And so there's a lot of posturing. Um, and, and the way he describes it actually is, you know, we're, we're handing the, the responsibility for transition and transformation to the people who have the most to lose from it. And it's a bit like, you know, asking the foxes to do hen protection. I don't think a lot of these decisions are very easy to do voluntarily. Um, you know, there are some instances where we can see the courage where businesses are genuinely changing. Uh, I, I gave a talk to a Scottish power renewables last week in Glasgow and very interesting in the fact, you know, they've divested all of their thermal energy generation. You know, they've got rid of it all, um, but it hasn't gone. You know, it's still, another operator is now running it all. So it, you can get those, and, they, and I think they've done it partly for pragmatic business reasons as well, because they can, with, with the pun intended, see which way the wind is blowing. And so they're realizing that offshore wind and onshore wind and solar is very much where the future of their business is going to be. Um, but as I say, that's quite self-interested still. I think where you see, it's, it's hard to identify leaders who are genuinely manifesting and practicing that bigger than self-purpose. Um, and maybe that's because uh, our current fiduciary responsibilities and duties are still providing a constraining cage that prevent that type of radicalism. Unless you look, you know, much lower down, much smaller businesses, you know, the more fleet of foot disruptive entrepreneurs and innovators. I think, you know, the, the increasing power of emergent platform cooperatives is, is really interesting in that respect. And someone has just been raising that prospect again now that Uber uh has, has is under threat of losing its license in london for the umpteenth time um and every time this happens we say look why can't we why can't tfl why can't the government or someone uh inspire the setup of a a, a ride sharing app which is owned by the drivers and the passengers so they are all dynamic participants in the shared ownership model which would stop this sort of you know exploitation of zero hours contracts uh and and the precariat amongst the drivers and the hoovering off of every you know pound of profit to some uber rich uh, silicon valley dot com billionaires uh, in california um, and actually we could be seeing that economy being a very lively locally driven owned and operated type of entity so if you, if you if you were, if you were to name check a few a few of the green shoots of the kind of either large corporations or it sounds like you're more thinking that the smaller more agile cooperatives and things like that have the have the scope to maneuver into the kind of position that's needed now what 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 names or or what companies come to you as inspiring examples at the moment yeah because I, and i think that sitting underneath your question is that to the extent to how much can we reform some of these big entities um you know to what extent are they sort of paralyzed by their own um failure to innovate you know their own inability to live a bigger than self-purpose and their own ability to self-disrupt in a way which is genuinely transformative. Whereas you can see actually smaller businesses, you know, I mean, like some of the ones that I'm involved in, you know, where it's, it's genuinely about disrupting a, uh, you know, a completely unsustainable option. So tell, tell, tell us about one or two of those. Just give us a little kind of couple of minutes. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, just on the energy one, Piclo is very interesting. So, Piclo is essentially a tech business which is trying which is developing the software which will enable a much more dynamic and live 
interaction on the energy grid. So a bit like what we might call the internet, you know, the energy internet. So which should allow everyone to be a, both a producer and a customer um, in real time. And so by developing the, 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 the technological platform, which will facilitate that, you can see how the internet can start to be realized. So we go away from this very linear model of, of big centralized energy generation, where everyone just has to sit at the end of a cable and pay their bill uh, without much choice, or you know, where everyone starts, or a vast majority of us start to become generators ourselves and therefore active participants in the system. And I think this is the thing, is that how do we move back into a, a system which is much more collaborative and cooperative, um, if not in specific business definition, but certainly in, in, in behavioral practice. And, and I think those kind of things are really exciting. And, we, and you know, I, I mentioned the sort of transport examples, but there's another one I'm involved in, which is about um, using bamboo instead of plastic. You know, they, they started off doing straws, which was an interesting, you know, sort of gateway issue. But then, you know, bamboo is such an extraordinary product. You know, it's the world's fastest growing land plant. It grows a meter a day. You can practically meditate and watch it grow. Um, and so that's a great way of displacing uh, the, the plastic solutions. Because actually there's some people who, you know, particularly um, disabled people, uh, you know, there are uses for straws, um, which, which, which we still need to, you know, we don't necessarily need to be stirring our cocktails with them. Uh, but there are some people who really need them. Um, and then, you know, I think the stuff that gets me really excited, um, I guess, is, is the really grassroots stuff. It's almost, it's represented a bit by, you know, the explosion in microbreweries as something which is sort of fairly pleasurable everyone can connect to over the last sort of 10 years or so. But I think it's those businesses with a sort of deep soul and localization and, in, and inclusive um, employment that bring life back into places again. Um, I think that's the stuff which has real heart to it. And, and it's also busting this idea that businesses always have to kind of perpetually grow to succeed. Can we not envisage and idealize businesses at appropriate scale, which are perfectly healthy and viable, but don't necessarily have, you know, the aspiration to clone themselves and infiltrate every other locality across the land in the process of realizing their goals. That's great. I really like those examples a lot. And I also know that you have, you traveled, I mean, you did your round the world without flying journey and wrote about it in Only Planet. And I wonder what you saw around the globe. We're just going to globalize this conversation for a moment. And yeah. what, what were you seeing and noticing in other places? Because also climate, the climate emergency feels like something that from the privileged position in the West, we say is coming at some point. But of course, for many people, it's already happening and has been happening for a long time. Yeah. If you're sitting on a Pacific island and you're noticing rising sea levels every day, <laughs> it's a different story. So I'm wondering how you, what, how you experienced that journey, but also kind of what you saw that is informing mm. your sense of what's needed now. Yeah, wow. Uh, I mean, how long have we got? <laughs> it's like I could talk for a very long time with this, but one or two examples immediately spring to mind. And so um, I traveled through Mongolia and, you know, for the, for the Mongolian herders and the nomads who live on the steppes, you know, their lifestyle is pretty much unchanged in a thousand years. Uh, they have a solar panel, they might have a motorbike um, and a satellite dish and those sort of modern accoutrements, but the yurts and the gares are still pretty much the same way they would have been a millennia ago. Um, and the lifestyle is so deeply in tune with the landscape because 
you're essentially subsisting on your livestock. Your livestock are, you know, grazing the fairly meagre um, pasture. Uh, you're milking, you're, you're, you're slaughtering, and you're, but you're also then using the dung of the animals to, to cook your food as well. So it's an incredibly tight circularity, which may also makes them much more vulnerable to things like climate change. And then, you know, Mongolian plateau has experienced a couple of degrees. It's more than the global average. People talk about it as a sort of climate change lab. And that's led to, you know, the typical paradoxically much more severe winters, what they call zuds, uh, which are these very extreme winters can, which can often kill a lot of the livestock on which people depend, which has led to more urban migration into Ulaanbaatar and the kind of abandonment of the pastoral way of life. And also, like we're seeing in other parts of the world, you know, these fierce droughts and, and, and some forest fires. So Mongolia felt like a, a real microcosm of, of, of what is going on out there. Um, and in terms of food loops, you know, I think the tightest one I ever experienced was on a, a lake in Phnom Penh, where, you know, you ate catfish curry and then you, you used the facilities which overhung the lake. And when you used the facilities, you know, you, you watched the catfish uh, make the most of your contribution. And it's like, hang on, is it just me and the catfish in this food web? It feels a little bit tight for comfort. Um, so you witnessed these things. And I'm wondering, so there's, there's, an Im there's an immediacy and a kind of urgency about what's yeah. being experienced there. And I'm wondering if you came out of those experiences feeling a greater sense of urgency or and or did you see things that encouraged you also yes i mean undoubtedly greater sense of urgency i mean the whole thing i sometimes describe the trip as a sort of climate change pilgrimage because obviously it was a, a very low carbon endeavor um but also because i was obviously open-eyed to to the experiences and the things i was seeing Stuff that really um, gave me hope, the really positive stuff. Um, it's a slightly more challenging one to answer um, in some ways. I'm just, I'm trying to th think. I mean, I found Mexico to be one of those places where there was a vitality and a, and a, and a, a kind of vibrancy to life that made you think, these people can probably handle anything that the world might throw at them. And indeed, you know, they have done. Um, and visiting, you know, regions like uh, Chiapas with the Zapatistas and that incredible community resilience. Um, and, you know, and, and also an understanding which, which felt very deeply rooted of what was fundamentally right, of how to be on a particular piece of land, how to live with uh, an, an alignment with that land and the life that you share it with. Um, and I found that incredibly inspiring, you know, wow. to, to see that sort of, that, that real um, tenacity. And, and to, be, to be fair, you saw it in the Mongolians as well, but um, just, you know, that ability to, to, to work with what you have, to work with it in, in simple and elegant uh, ways, um, and to be able to hopefully cope with the, the bumps of what either the climate or the environment or even the rest of society might throw at us. Yeah, it sounds like there's something very powerful about that sense of place mm. and belonging and being rooted in the land, which also, yeah. of course, builds a sense of resilience and possibility. Yeah. I wonder if we can move a bit also now to, to communication, because, of course, you know, you're a communication expert. You've been communicating issues around sustainability for a long time and kind of coaching companies and how to do that. And one of the one of the tasks of leaders is to communicate, right? Yeah. So how do we communicate both 
Yeah, how do we communicate the, the challenge of the climate emergency? I mean, you've spent a lot of your yeah. life looking at that. The, the stories of gloom and doom generally don't seem to motivate and move people very much. What have you found helpful? What kind of communication do leaders need to embrace? Well, perhaps I'll pick up on that last point because I, I don't know whether that, that's necessarily true about doom and gloom being necessarily um, entirely paralyzing. I think they can be. I mean, if you'd asked me the same question, Robin, five or 10 years ago, you'd have got a very different answer. You know, I would have been, I think, much more in the, you know, super positive, you know, pragmatic optimism, you know, we can make this happen. You know, everyone just needs to wake up uh, and, and it'll all be hunky-dory. And, and I would have been a staunch defender, I think, of that um, positive, optimistic perspective of motivating and mobilizing people. I mean, that said, I think many of us were sent slightly reeling by the, the intensified urgency of the IPCC report of last year, you know, when suddenly it was like, oh, hang on. You know, this is, we, we, you know, we, we all knew it was serious. We all knew it was existential, but suddenly it felt like we'd, the road had shortened. Um, you know, we'd come a lot closer to a point that I think we'd all feared um, than perhaps we might have imagined. Uh, and so, I do think there's a couple of things which have happened, particularly in the last 12 months. I think it's partly Extinction Rebellion. Uh, suddenly you've got this very visible, very colourful, often playful um, movement um, catching the headlines and, and through both disruption and creation of spaces uh, where that protest can manifest itself, did get the attention of people. And I think you couple that with the lived experience of climate change, which even you know, people now in the UK we'll perhaps sardonically joke about but you know when we've had a 22 degree day in February and everyone's on the beach and Saddle with Moore is catching fire in Northern England in February you know that these things aren't supposed to happen um you couple that in with the devastating floods you know the drought of last year um and I think people's lived and felt experience of the weather has has turned into a sort of weirding so people and and that feels uncomfortable you know, when, when it becomes unpredictable and volatile, you can't, and we're obsessed with the weather in Britain anyway, but you know, it feels like we can't trust it. We can trust it even less now. It's like, you know, we knew it was a, uh, a fairly kind of uh, changeable beast, but now it feels much more shifty. Um, and so I think the tell the truth and act like the truth is real push point. As I said earlier, open something up in people. So I think the communication of this now is not just about escape routes it's not just about the pathways to possibility it is about i think you have to couple that with the severity and the urgency of the moment we're in and the big pivotal decisions that have to be made now and the fact that this will not be a seamless transition you know it will involve not necessarily a sacrifice i think the word sacrifice in itself is quite loaded um, but it will mean doing things differently and i actually think you know and i know we'll share a lot of these visions and ideals where you think you know what's on the other side of this might well be better so the use of sacrifice is a, is a wrong way to frame it because the problem you face in terms of communicating to people to open them up is the fact that people's idea of the future and you know about this leading from the future is that they find it they really struggle to get beyond the status quo or an extension of the status quo they can imagine a tweaked version or you know and and as embodied by, oh, well, we're, and by 2030, we'll all be driving electric cars. It's like, well, I mean, when I worked at London Transport in the late 90s, I used to say, yeah, but we'll still be stuck in clean, quiet traffic jams. 
Um, you know, so it's it's not going to be, a, but you know, actually a walkable neighborhoods and localized economies where people are strolling to work uh, and their kids are playing in a you know collective space together. Um, and yeah, that's better. That's what Rob Hopkins talks about in terms of the power of imagination. It's like, but people find it hard to conceptualize of that when, when they're being sold constantly incremental change. Um, so, yeah, I'm mean, I, I, I quite where I'm going with that now, but um, I, I think in, in terms of the communication, you've got to have, you've got to have a bit of edge to it. And we, I always used to talk about it when, I, when we first started Futera in the early noughties. Uh, you know, fear, with, no fear without agency. So what are people gonna do? You've got to, you can't scare people and say, and by the way, we've got no plan. We've got no idea what we're gonna do because that's pretty cruel apart from anything else. Um, and that the fear should be the seasoning in the recipe. It should, you know, you've got to be careful. You've got to balance it. If you put a little bit in, in the communications mix, you know, you, you can enhance enhance the digestion of the message but if you put in too much then no one eats you know it's like over salting something um and i and i i know certainly when i stand up in front of an audience i still need to do the climate change intro because everyone will say oh yeah yeah we know about that we know about that but the story i try and tell in those first 10 minutes is the thing that sticks with people because it's not about data it's about narrative it's about setting up the relationship to climate change in a completely different way, which isn't just about science. You know, it isn't just about the negative impacts, but it is about a story of who we are and the way that we relate to each other and the rest of the world. And it's a symptom. And, and unless people start to embrace that story, then we'll be forever, you know, fighting symptoms. Right. And I think, isn't it also about feeling it? Yeah, of course. Like when, like when, <clears throat> I think that's, I think there's a very fine art in a way, like one of the other people I'm going to be interviewing, Thomas Hubel, spiritual teacher and mystic, talks a lot about what he calls global social witnessing. Mm. So, so we can get a bit of news. Like you mentioned earlier, Paul Gilding gives a talk and at some point he says, well, maybe two or three billion people are going to die. And there's a kind of like, ah. and then, and then, yeah. but then we're kind of on like, oh yeah, but no, 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 time, no. For tea break, time for tea break now. You know, and, and it's kind of registered a little bit, but we haven't really hosted it. And I think there's a practice, and maybe this is also part of what leaders need to do. And I'm curious, like how you experience it in yourself, but also where you see it in others, of, of really kind of feeling it enough mm. in our hearts that we really, we host that reality without it becoming overwhelming to the point where it paralyzes us. I don't know, I totally, I totally agree. And to be honest, I think for my first 15 years as, a, as an activist and consultant, I didn't feel it, you know? And I think that was why I was able to perhaps stay in that slightly one-dimensional optimistic space. Um, and I mean, I might have mentioned this to you before, but for me, the New Story Summit at Findhorn in 2015, whenever it was, 2014, um, was, a, was the first time I felt like I genuinely embodied that grief, the first time I really felt that sense of that loss and pain um, and, and connection with, with the kind of the, the, the legacy that we were unfolding. Um, and ever since then, I've, I've endeavoured in my talks, you know, I'll, I'll cite the WWF Living Planet Report, which says, you know, 60% of our wild vertebrate biomass gone pretty much in our lifetime, you know, since 1970. And you say that, and, and exactly like you say with the climate piece, and then I'll pause and I just say, 
And let's just not think about that as a you know, horrendous piece of data, but let's just try and imagine and feel what that means. You know, that's every animal with a backbone. And I have, you know, I have to some point turn around to my two and a half year old daughter and say, yeah, all of those animals, all those big charismatic megafauna with wet noses and brown eyes, you know, that they disappeared on our watch, you know, and that's not a numbers game or not just a numbers game. That's a, that's a very soulful, um, mournful type of realization and recognition to come to. And I think you have to, as you say, you have to absorb that and you have to sit with that and it's, and it's not comfortable. And that's um, part of courage, isn't it? Part of the yeah. courage is partly the courage to kind of act against the market or whatever, but it's also the courage to fully feel the yeah. reality of what we're being told. Yeah, and I think, and that's, again, this is the, the problem with a lot of the corporate positioning, is the entire culture is orientated around promotion and celebration. It's like, we're amazing. What we've done is amazing. Don't we deserve brownie points and, and claps on the backs? And, uh, and it's all about, you know, either conjuring or seeking or pursuing that recognition the whole time. And it takes genuine courage for a leader to stand up and say, actually, I think our business model is completely buggered. You know, and actually this is not going to be solved by tweaks. This is going to, this involves us to completely reimagine what we do. And, and that's not, and this is where the purpose is so powerful if you actually get it right, rather than doing so much of the sort of purpose wash that we see in organisations who sort of retrofitted a purpose onto the, onto the existing beast and then used that to justify um, pretty much business as usual. Um, what, what we need to be seeing is people genuinely living that purpose. I mean, I had a big run-in with a bottled water firm where we were essentially running a sustainability workshop. And it was like, guys, you know, your model's bonkers. You know, you take perfectly potable drinking water, stick it in a plastic bottle, chuck it for hundreds of miles, to people who've already got perfectly possible drinking water. You know, this makes no sense. Highly lucrative. You make vast amounts of cash out of it. Um, but, you know, your purpose is hydration. And you could be creative genuinely about that and create like these innovative lifeboats. And I think businesses are starting to wake up to this opportunity. But at first it requires someone to have the courage to say, look, you know, we're aware that there's some madness at play here. Um, and I think you, you're starting to see it in energy business as well. I mean, I mentioned Scottish Power divesting, but I think, you know, if you genuinely live that purpose and use it as a pivot, then you can reorientate an organisation quite radically over relatively short periods of time. But that requires someone to stand up and to call it um, and to then harness the kind of the skills and experience and insights and creativity of their own team and beyond. To begin that process and that will involve shareholder battles and investor discussions and, and 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 people having to have some trust and confidence in the fact that the transition is possible but what you're stuck in at the moment is because everyone is always striving for the highest return you know things which are far more radically sustainable get dismissed because not because they're unprofitable but just because they're less profitable right and and that's where and that's where the courage i think comes forward if people can embody that and say, We're, we will still be a viable business in this transition, but we are not going to be the same business. Um, and we won't be doing the same things. And we probably won't be making the same margins, but we'll still be here and we'll still be serving our purpose. Right. That's great. So I think you're giving us a lot of food for thought around the kind of qualities that leaders need to have and that organizations need to have around purpose, around courage, around what is enough 
like different mm -hmm. things that we we've talked about and maybe the last question i want to ask you is about urgency because sometimes there's a sense of, you know, we got 10 years or maybe 11 years or maybe it's eight years or maybe it's too late or <clears throat> science is wrong. We got 20 years. Like wh how important is it for us all, for leaders to, to get the science and to work with urgency or does urgency actually get in the way of creativity and innovation? No, I mean, again, I think my, my response to that question has probably evolved. Uh, I would have been skeptical because I think, if you've worked in it for 20 or 30 years, 20 years in my case, it's like, you know, you've heard everyone go, oh yeah, I've heard the, the tech, 10 years, you know, a hundred months. Um, I've heard all of those. And, uh, and then you watch them. It was it Douglas Adams said, yeah, I love the sound of deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they go past. Um, so I say that, say that a bit slower and didn't quite catch that. So as Douglas Adams said, he goes, I love, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they whiz past. Ah. Um, and, yeah, I, but I think actually they can be useful in terms of galvanizing. I, I, and I know there's been a very rich and um, nuanced discussion around the use of climate emergency. And some people say actually, you know, emergency is, is, is a little bit dangerous because it plays into the, the powers of the state in terms of a state of emergency, which can mean crackdowns on civil liberties uh, and all sorts of things which we probably wouldn't want to see in that, you know, that flirting with a sort of eco-fascism. Uh, I do think there is an aspect of that we have to be acutely conscious and aware of. At the same time, I also find when people genuinely talk about climate emergency, it, it prevents the backtracking or it certainly slows it. You know, because you can then start to ask the question, the proper question, the harder, tougher question, you go, how does what we're fit doing fit with the reality of a climate emergency? And that I think is a much sharper um, investigation to be having. So I think climate emergency can be useful and I think what I've what I've written about certainly is uh, and discussed at the Forward Institute, we, uh, the Forward Institute declared climate emergency earlier this year and we're encouraging all of our members to go down that route as, uh, as well and it's almost echoing the three demands of Extinction Rebellion. So it's like number one, tell the truth and act like that truth is real. Number two, zero carbon by 2025. You know probably technically impossible but we have to aim high you know this is radical radical goals um you know aim for 25 you might do it by 2030 uh and then the third one is the citizens assembly you know for getting that inclusion um and i think the usually higher minded perspective of people working collaboratively together on the toughest decisions we have to make collectively and i think if you replicate that within an organization you can see so the 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 board should declare, you know, this business, you know, we, we declare emergency. We, we, we see this, the country's done it, the council's done it, our competitors are doing it. Um, the second one is, you know, then whether it's science-based targets or, or working out that, you know, your business has to basically cut its carbon in half in the next 10 years, at least, at least. And really, we should all be looking at what zero carbon as the long goal looks like. That should be the kind of the North Star now. And then by doing a kind of internal version of a, a, a citizens assembly, then you bring together, you know, a demographic cross section of people from right across the organization, you know, CEO to janitor um, and get them to wrangle. Cause you guarantee a lot of the ideas are already there. Um, I think there's a lot of insight and innovation, which is often suppressed and is simmering and ready to go. Um, and I think that would be an you know, incredibly inspiring reconnection of purpose for every employee in organization 
organisations, and might well flush out the, the, the outlines of a plan, which could then be, begin to be fleshed out and implemented. And I think that's where it gets exciting because, you know, most of us are disengaged at work. I think the Gallup State of the Workplace report last year said 87% either uh, disengaged or actively disengaged, which is pretty damning if almost 90% of us don't see any purpose in our work. So, you know, I often, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but I often just paraphrase the, the Kennedy moonshot quote. Because actually when you read it back and the very specific lines, when he said, you know, we choose to go to the moon, you know, not because it's easy, but because it's difficult, you know, and because it will literally test every strain of our ingenuity um, and innovation in order to make it happen. And it will be the, the testing of the greatest values that we could possibly hold together. And so if you just replace, you know, go to the moon with zero carbon, you get a very compelling proposition because it's like, yes, it's an emergency. Yes, it's looking a bit disastrous right now. But going back to what I was saying about the false binary, we're not expecting miracles here, but it will be the non-linear, you know, very strange emergent green swans or green unicorns, whatever you want to call them, that come out of that awkward um, space in the middle that will hopefully enable the transcendence. And they won't just be financial, they won't just be technological, they will be social, they will be emotional, they will be spiritual. That's great, Ed. I really like that. I really love this ending that you've brought us to about bringing the the three planks of, of the the mm. Extinction Rebellion platform into you know businesses, organize into into any yeah. form of entity. Basically, yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a great idea. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for bringing Me us too. your dark optimism and your <laughs> and, and your unique brand of insultancy. I really love it. And thanks so much well, for your time today. And uh, good luck to you with all your great adventures and contributions in the years to come. Yeah, thank you very much, Robin. Always a pleasure.